0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle24 with me, Marcus Hippie. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week…
1: You see how there was both alliances that were being formed with the common enemy of getting Donald Trump out of the White House and, at the same time, fissures that were opening or being barely papered over, that now you see, with the Democrats in power, a totally different approach.
0: Author Edward Isaac Dover tells us about his book charting the internal workings of the US Democrat Party over the last 15 years. Plus we meet the commercial helicopter pilot causing a buzz with his high-end Manuka brand.
2: We wanted to be able to provide honey lovers around the world with the opportunity, if they're buying a very premium, luxury-end product, to have the confidence that it's come from some of the cleanest, greenest locations around New Zealand.
0: All that and much, much more over the next hour here on the Curator. With me, Michael Seabee. As we wrap our week, it's time to recap some of the things we know today that we didn't seven days ago. Here is Monaco's contributing editor Andrew Muller with this week's What We Learned.
3: We learned this week that this life is but a futile trudge from cradle to grave, a weary and careworn schlep through a veil of tears, a meaningless plod in inexorable circles around the sinkhole, and so forth. And we learned this on the authority of Russian President Vladimir Putin, comparisons of whom too a ray of sunshine have been historically infrequent. Speaking at this week's summit with US President Joe Biden in Geneva, Putin gave us the following to go home and think about, as translated now by Monocle24's baleful Russian fatalism desk chief, Paige Reynolds.
4: There is no happiness in life. There is only a mirage
3: on the horizon. And happy Russia Day for last Saturday to you too, Mr President. President Putin's interlocutor at Geneva also had much to teach us, it turned out. We learned from President Biden an interesting, even innovative, interpretation of the course of American foreign policy, which positions the United States, it turns out, as comfortably ensconced on the moral high ground, vis-à-vis interfering with the affairs of other nations.
5: How would it be if the United States were viewed by the rest of the world
3: as interfering with the elections directly of other countries? And
5: everybody knew it.
3: What would it be like if we engaged in activities that he is engaged in? It diminishes the standing of a country that is desperately trying to make sure it maintains its standing as a major world power. You know that clip we have of awkward coughing, chairs being scraped on the floor of an empty room, and empty bottles being cleared away? Now would be a good time. It has been quite the school week here in the UK as well, where we learned that Health Secretary Matt Hancock is not, contrary to widespread suspicion, hopeless. We learned this on no less an authority than Hancock himself, via one of those extremely useful and always informative journalistic encounters which involve someone yelling a belligerent question at a car and receiving a dismissive answer, faintly audible, over a revving engine.
6: Are you
7: hopeless, Mr Hancock? I don't
3: think so. In fairness, I don't think so is quite an endearing answer. How certain are any of us, really?
6: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah,
3: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. We had learned prior to this enlightening exchange that the issue of Hancock's hopelessness had been raised a while back in a WhatsApp message from Prime Minister Boris Johnson to his very much former aide Dominic Cummings, which appeared this week in one of the interminable blog posts with which Cummings is now passing his days before the next season of Strictly Come Dancing. We learned that Johnson had indeed described Hancock as hopeless and that he had emphasised this assessment with an adverb rhyming with clocking, ducking, trucking, bucking or plucking. But we did also learn that the UK's government had wrangled one unalloyed triumph. A free trade deal between the UK and Australia was jointly announced in London by Boris Johnson and Australian Prime Minister, and only Australian presently allowed to leave the country, Scott Morrison, and we learned that the UK's negotiators had indeed got much the better of their Australian counterparts. the broad outlines of the deal, as you can imagine is that uh, uh, you give us Tim Tams, we give you you penguins, uh, uh, you give us Vegemite, we give you Marmite. For listeners who may have missed the subtext, the objective facts of the matter are that Tim Tams are excellent biscuits and penguins are really just not, and that Vegemite is God's own yeast extract sandwich spread and Marmite is garbage. And we learned a valuable lesson in the perils of engaging the general public in your much ballyhooed media startup. Here in the UK, GB News took to the airwaves to provide a broadcasting haven to that cohort of society who are simply not having pretty much everything that has happened since about 1971 and now live in fear of such altogether imaginary oppressors as cancel culture and wokeism. And we learned that, by golly, GB News wanted to hear from you. Instead, GB News heard from the coincidentally forenamed scions of the Hunt and Oxlong families.
6: Mike Hunt has gone in touch about toys. I don't think kids need a stroke. And
4: Mike Oxlong has emailed me saying that he agrees with me. He says,
3: but we also learned from one of GB News's beleaguered presenters that this sort of deeply puerile prankery just isn't funny. Uh, uh, some people think it's really funny to send in uh, texts and messages that on the basis that if we read them out, you know, we, we've, been, we've been had. Uh, you're still doing it and, and, and I'm watching them and it, it doesn't help anybody. Counterpoint, it is funny. Tune in to GB News next week as the Freelies, Jablomis, Coholics, and Huggin kisses have their say. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Up next, we look back to last weekend's edition of The Foreign Desk. Most discussion of sports and politics mixing is rooted in the assumption that any such crossover is bad. But what if it isn't? In 1995, South Africa hosted the Rugby World Cup, the first in which they had been allowed to compete. It was two years since apartheid had ended, one since Nelson Mandela had been elected president. Against all odds and expectations, South Africa won it and mandela seized the moment to make a startling gesture of reconciliation last weekend on the foreign desk andrew muller spoke to john taylor a former wales rugby union international who refused to play against south africans when they came to britain and ireland john was also the commentator for itv when springboks captain francois pinard and nelson mandela lifted the web ellis trophy
5: My decision to make myself unavailable for Wales against the Springboks in 69-70 actually stemmed from the Lions Tour in 1968, which I did go on to South Africa. I was like everybody else, 22 years old, wanting desperately to be a lion. And although I was full of misgivings, really sort of uh, had a bit of a debate with myself, I decided to actually take the easy way out, obey the rugby mantra, which was that we weren't supporting apartheid, we were building bridges and become a lion. That was probably the most important thing in my life. But when I got out there and was actually confronted with the realities of apartheid, it very soon became clear to me that this was something that was an absolute farce as far as the stance that rugby as a sport took and the stance that really the British government took too. I was a teacher in a big comprehensive school in Southwest London, every color creed and nationality. And I came to the conclusion that it was something I just couldn't square with my teaching job and what I was trying to do with my pupils. Going to South Africa and playing rugby in that environment was just something that I just couldn't square. At least three coloured youths were killed outright before they could take cover. The police said they were using birdshot designed to wound, not kill. But at short range, the ammunition was still deadly. Nearby buildings were peppered with gunshots. I wrote to the secretary of the Welsh Rugby Union said I wished to make myself unavailable, was told it would be a matter of, treated as a matter of conscience, and then, unexpectedly, because I'd been a, very prominent part of the team the year before, I was also left out of the squad for the, what was then the Five Nations Championship. Fortunately, Wales had a bad season (laughs) and after being beaten by Ireland 14-0, they still had France to play for the last game of the season and I was called back in, but not before the South Wales Miners and a few other lefty type organizations had sort of jumped in and pleaded my case and pointed out that obviously I was being left out for political reasons. But rugby was basically still determined to push this agenda that sport and politics shouldn't mix and it was just an impossible thing. I could never get my head around it because it was so obvious that it was not the case. I was sharing a house with Mervyn Davies, number eight, and Merv was a little bit younger than me. We went together and the 71 Lions tour to New Zealand, but he wasn't there in 68. And people like Gareth Edwards, Phil Bennett, Gerald Davies, Gerald had some misgivings about going and eventually pulled out without saying he was pulling out directly because of apartheid. But the problem was the establishment. The establishment, I was told quite clearly by two very eminent RFU, English senior figures, that I should never be allowed to play international rugby again. You're either out of this or in this, and there's no halfway house and sneaking to the television and having a look. No regrets at all, I mean, my decision was made very very clearly pretty well by the end of the 1968 Lion Store. that was the absolute crucial bit of making me make my decision because i did see apartheid in operation and i very quickly spent some time with the anti-apartheid guys over here and came to the conclusion that it wasn't just a question of a protest it was Evident to me that the only way anything was going to change in South Africa was if they were isolated from cricket and rugby. The thought that Nelson Mandela would be president and the man in charge was just unthinkable. I think what you've got to remember in all this is the South African Rugby Board, which was the white rugby union out there, was prepare to do anything to stay in international rugby. Yet the reality on the ground, I always like to use the Group Areas Act as my barometer. It was originally created in 1950 and it basically stopped black and colored people from living in certain areas and pushed them more and more into the margins. But what you've got to realize is that between 1966, when it was amended in a big way, and 1984 when pressure was starting to build through sporting boycott there were 10 at least amendments all geared to basically pushing the black and colored communities further and further into the margins so whatever Darnie craven and those people running the white south african rugby board were saying about no we're trying to liberalize sport it was a nonsense And it was actually a pretty sudden thing. As I say, I had come to the conclusion that the only way we could do anything about South Africa was to isolate them. And I'm thrilled to say it happened. And Mandela, leading up to his release, that all came about, I believe, partly, obviously only partly, because of the sporting boycott. And it was only when they were isolated that suddenly, it literally came tumbling down. In 95, at that cup final, I think probably the biggest surprise was Mandela going the whole hog and coming out in the Springbok jersey.
3: And when he walked into the, um, the dressing room wearing a Springbok on his, on his heart, it was just, wow. He just stood there and he said, uh, uh, good luck, boys, and, and he turned around. And my number was on his back and that was me. I couldn't sing the anthem because I knew I would, I would cry. Um, I was just so proud to be uh, South Africa that day.
5: He was a star, wasn't he, Mandela? He absolutely, really didn't put a foot wrong. And one of the reasons for embracing the Rugby World Cup instead of shunning it was that he realized he desperately needed the white population on side and there had to be this healing process. of course he did it absolutely wonderfully there it is francois pina and nelson mandela is cheering along with the whole of the stadium it was an unusual day for me because we had trevor mcdonald out on loan from itn to help with the presentation of the program because he could use his clout to get an interview with Nelson Mandela, and he'd done that. But the bit that was unusual for me was they asked me if I would, because of my background, actually do the build-up to the game with Trevor. Made such a terrific impression in this tournament, taking a short one, totally different. A mistake, but South Africa picking it up, so... Some of the listeners will have seen the film Invictus. And there was a bit in Invictus where the Boeing 747 comes over the ground very low. And they tried to turn it in good Clint Eastwood style into a bit of fiction that there was fear of a terrorist attack. There wasn't, it was on our script. We knew that plane was coming over, but it came over so low, I have to tell you, it was incredibly frightening. And Trevor and I both ducked under our desk. But Trevor being the wonderful broadcaster, he is, just put his finger to his lips and said, say nothing. And we got back up on de- and carried on talking as if nothing had happened. But it was a wonderful, wonderful occasion. And I think people don't realize how close South Africa was to sort of civil war might be a bit too strong, but it wasn't out of the question in those months before mandela got into power and he realized he was the arch diplomat as well as politician strong on his beliefs wonderful man and he knew he had to carry the white population with him I basically sort of have to stop myself laughing every time I hear that uh, sport and politics ought to be kept separate because it has never ever been possible. And we can go back into ancient history, but I mean, even coming into the relatively modern times from the 1936 Olympics onwards, sport has always been used. I used to commentate on gymnastics. I did four Olympics and I had to go to Russia and China in the 70s and the 80s. And there was no question that they were using sport to actually showcase themselves. And it's been there forever. And I was ashamed of rugby and cricket because that's not what their motivation was at all. It was basically that the rugby fraternity and the cricket fraternity were more important than the actual brotherhood of man. If we bring it right up to date with Black Lives Matter, the sportsmen have kept going as long as they have in making that protest. And I believe solidly that they should keep going and not stop until they've beaten the Boers.
0: John Taylor, the former Wales Rugby Union international and sports commentator for last weekend's edition of The Foreign Desk. You are listening to the curator on Monocle 24 with me, Marcus Hippi. With his current tour, Joe Biden is very publicly demonstrating that America is back. On The Globalist earlier this week, Monocle's Georgian Godwin spoke to an author who has followed democratic politics for 15 years, closely monitoring that journey. Edward Isaac Doveri is a staff writer for The Atlantic. His new book is called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to defeat Trump. Edward joined Georgina on the line from Washington DC and began by explaining how the Democrats managed to win the presidency, especially after the longest primary race and biggest field ever.
1: I think the answer to your question is that it was just barely. This is a book that ended up topping out at about 500 pages, and there could have been lots of other uh, stories and pages that were written for it uh, through all the twists and turns. But this was not an easy path back for Democrats, and it presents them, uh, even though they had a good result in the end with Biden defeating Trump. It was not the kind of result and not the size of uh, margin that they were hoping for and that they thought would be theirs, especially given how much energy there was, it seemed, against Donald Trump and all of that accentuated by his handling of the pandemic.
4: And so what about the, the struggles within the party itself? I mean, have they stayed united? They've, they've, there's been internal struggles between newly empowered progressives and establishment forces. And of course, as you say, with, with the pandemic, with the economic crisis, and the whole new racial reckoning in the background.
1: Well, it's all those things and much more. I was reporting on the goings on of the Democratic Party day to day for my day job. And there's so much in this book that I did not know had been happening until I started reporting it over for the book. And you see how there was both alliances that were being formed with the common enemy of getting Donald Trump out of the White House. And at the same time, fissures that were opening or being barely papered over that now you see with them, uh, with the Democrats in power a totally different approach, of course, because Donald Trump's not there anymore. There's not an election in front of them anymore. And now they've gotten through the first couple of months of COVID relief and getting past the the horrors of the riot and everything else that was going on after the election. And now it's, can you actually have a governing agenda? Can you do things like infrastructure? Big things that Democrats say they all believe in. But Of course, saying you believe in something is different from figuring out what that actually looks like when it comes to legislation.
4: So what is their strategy now for a return to the world stage?
1: Well, the big question in terms of international relations is whether what Donald Trump represented is the future of America and the future of America's involvement in global affairs, or whether Joe Biden's election showing that we're hopefully in his mind that it'll be a turn back to where things were before Trump, that that's where things were and that Trump was the aberration. We don't know which one is the answer. It's going to take some time for that to play out in terms of domestic politics, but certainly where where Joe Biden is aiming for in this first trip, going from the G7 to NATO to what will, uh, it seems like, be deliberately a confrontational conversation with Vladimir Putin, is saying that everything that was going on for the last four years is done.
4: And of course, though, nobody can trust that completely. NATO knows that four years goes past very fast.
1: Indeed. And and we just don't know what the future of American politics holds and whether there is a resurgent Trumpism or even a resurgent Trump that's coming. Uh, Joe Biden would like to uh, have people believe that, as he keeps saying, America is back, America is back. But it may be that he's the last vestige of what America was and and Donald Trump is what the future is. Or it may be that um, that, in fact, Biden's right. Or it may be something uh, alternative, some path between the two of them.
4: What do you personally believe?
1: I think we don't know. We see a country in America that is uh, going through a lot of turmoil. In this book, it's called Battle for the Soul. That imagery is uh, drawn from a phrase that Biden used a lot, but I think it's very much on point with where we are. And with what I tried to document in the book, there's a lot that is going on in America that is a constant churn and is obviously erupted in some violence along the way. It's unclear whether America is going through adolescence or a midlife crisis or the first stages of decline.
4: And in terms of unity within the party, is that working? Can can there be a a cohesive approach?
1: We haven't yet seen how it's played out except for around the the COVID relief legislation. So there is a, a huge push now for uh, infrastructure is the next big thing, one of the biggest spending packages in American history if Joe Biden gets his way. But can he unite the people who want there to be lots of priorities built into that, like childcare as part of infrastructure and climate change regulations as part of infrastructure, along with those people who are more uh, rightward leaning and, and opposed to bigger government spending and bigger government intervention even within the Democratic Party. That's what we're going to see tested over these next couple of weeks.
4: Uh, And of course, the book doesn't take in this current trip of Biden's, but watching it from DC, what are your conclusions about how he's changing the conversation about America and its domestic and, and foreign policy?
1: We all got used to seeing those images of Donald Trump uh, at any of these meetings of foreign leaders, pushing himself to the front or having very confrontational conversations with allies with Angela Merkel or with others. Uh, That's obviously not the imagery that we're seeing out of this. It's very much on purpose. You see, whether it's Boris Johnson or Emmanuel Macron, making very complimentary comments about Joe Biden. And in the book, uh, there is one of the first scenes that's reported in the book is the last meeting that Barack Obama had with Vladimir Putin about the election interference in 2016, and the hacking that was going on. And uh, there's some previously unreported details about Obama threatening consequences on Putin. Uh, And that obviously was not the kind of conversation that Donald Trump had been having with Vladimir Putin over these four years. And even over the last couple of weeks, uh, Trump put out a statement saying that he trusts Putin more than he trusts American intelligence. Uh, That's a stunning statement in itself for, for, for a president or former president of the United States. And Joe Biden is very much... Creating a demarcating line between that and uh, what he hopes is anything else about American policy.
0: Edward Isaac Devere speaking to our very own George N. Godwin earlier this week. Battle for the Soul: Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump is out now, and it's published by Penguin Random House. From the US we head north next for this week's edition of Tall Stories. In Canada the focus of the anger that has grown since the grim discovery of the remains of 215 indigenous children on the site of a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia has turned to the country's colonial era statues in particular those monuments that commemorate figures who are considered the architects of Canada's residential school system in the 19th century. Monaco's Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis went to the site of one of the most divisive of these statues in downtown Toronto.
7: I'm standing on the campus of Ryerson University here in downtown Toronto. And I'm standing in front of the statue of the man after whom this university is named, Egerton Ryerson. He was a reformer of public education in Ontario in the 19th century and he was also an architect of Canada's residential school system, which was run by successive federal governments and religious institutions for more than a century. It was a system that was intended to anglicise indigenous children by eroding their native languages and their cultures, by removing them from their families. It's a system that was described as having carried out cultural genocide against Indigenous children in Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, which was published back in 2016. And I've come here because this statue and the man it depicts have become a focal point for the anger, the grief and the disbelief that has swept across Canada since the grim discovery of the remains of 215 Indigenous children in unmarked graves on the grounds of a former residential school in the city of Kamloops in British Columbia in Western Canada. Now, this isn't the first time that calls for this statue to be taken down have been made, but those calls are sharper now, and the statue as I look at it now, is covered in the marks of protest. Ryerson's face has been daubed in red paint, and red has also been streaked down his torso, down along the front of his waistcoat. The palm of the statue's outstretched right hand has also symbolically been splattered with red. And around the stone plinth on which Ryerson's statue stands are words and numbers spray-painted Most starkly the words, dig them up, in reference to the remains of Indigenous children that have been found so far, and the numbers 215, to reflect the number of remains detected in Kamloops. Most poignantly around the base of the plinth are dozens of pairs of children's shoes. There are toddlers' Wellington boots, small pairs of trainers, and pairs of babies' booties. And just a moment ago, a woman with two young girls holding her hands came up and added their own pair of children's shoes to this memorial, deeply symbolic of those children, perhaps many thousands of them, that were taken away from their families and who never returned home. Memorials like the shoes that I'm looking at now have appeared in public spaces right across the country, but the fact that these pairs of shoes have been placed here at the base of the statue of Egerton Ryerson in Toronto are where they are arguably at their most powerful, at the foot of the man who, in the eyes of many, created a system that took their children away from them, in too many cases, forever. Well, a few days after I visited the statue of Egerton Ryerson on the campus of Ryerson University, a rally took place in downtown Toronto to mark once again the discovery in Kamloops and to reiterate calls for justice and reconciliation. And after weaving its way through the city, the march ended its course at the statue of Egerton Ryerson. At some point during the gathering, a rope was attached, one end to a pickup truck, the other end looped around the head of the statue, and it was once and for all pulled down. The statue was then taken to Toronto Harbour and thrown into the waters of Lake Ontario.
1: The statue is down and won't be replaced. Egerton Ryerson no longer standing on the campus that bears his name.
8: The school now considering next steps. Ryerson is known as an architect of Canada's residential school system. CTV's Scott Lightfoot is live on the campus with more. Scott. Well, Nathan, all day
0: people have been stopping by here, some to take photos, some for a moment of reflection. We've actually seen a few people climb up on that pedestal where the statue once was. You know, people have been calling for Ryerson to take this statue down for years. In the end, it only took demonstrators a couple of minutes to do exactly that.
7: Ryerson University has said that it won't be replacing the statue or restoring what's left of it. And focus has now swung to the university's name. Pressure is now mounting on the institution to remove Ryerson from its title entirely, something that activists have called for for many, many years. The university says that a task force has been set up to examine how renaming the university might be brought about.
6: I don't want this to just be, you know, uh, picked up moment by moment. I would like this to be a sustainable thing where we see change at the institutional level uh, to take away the name, to take away the statue and have a larger conversation about colonial violence and white supremacy in this country and start undoing those mechanisms.
7: All that remains of the statue of Egerton Ryerson now is its stone plinth, covered in the spray-painted words of protest and of anger and of pain that capture this turning point the discovery in Kamloops has brought about. It's unclear at this stage what will happen to this remnant of the statue. There are those that argue that physical remnants of history cannot and should not be erased or hidden from view, no matter how painful or visceral those chapters of history are to a present-day audience because turning our gaze the other way doesn't ensure justice for the very real wrongs that were committed in the past. But context matters, and the legacy of the statue of Egerton Ryerson might therefore be most accurately conveyed in one of Canada's national museums. The plinth taken away and, importantly, kept as it is, covered in its spray-painted words of protest and preserved there for years to come. In that setting, it would speak most clearly of Canada's many conflicting truths, the dark, lingering chapters of its colonial past. But also, it would capture a potent and powerful snapshot of this turning point in the long fight for justice from the innumerable damages that that system wrought on Canada's
0: indigenous populations. Thanks to Thomas Lewis for that. Still to come here on The Curate, we meet the artist and designer Yinka Ilori to discuss his work found across London's boroughs. And he may have been the bee's niece as a commercial helicopter pilot, but Jim Macmillan reveals how he's now causing a buzz with his high-end Manuka brand. Stay tuned.
4: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: You are with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. The good team of kinfolk is back with a new title named Kindling. The title is aimed at people with children, with clever design, insightful articles and, if you are lucky, some cute stickers inside too. To discuss Kindling's first issue and how the main title is celebrating 10 years, Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco spoke to Kindling's editor-in-chief, Harriet Fitch Little.
6: Kindling, there's definitely things in there for children – We've got a section at the back called Fun Stuff, which is um, exercises, sort of games that you can play with children. But the focus of the sort of content of the magazine is definitely mainly for adults. And it's for parents. I'm sure, you know, parents will be our primary demographic, but the way we've sort of written the content, we really want it to be of interest to anyone who is sort of involved in raising a child in, you know, the many forms that that can take.
9: What about the format? I mean, it's, it's quite nice. I mean, I know kind of the idea of parents and kids, but I love the smaller format. I mean, so it's kind of just to really differentiate as well from the from Kinfolk, the main title, even though they might be complementary, but, you know, it's, there's quite a difference there
6: as yeah. well. I think um, our art director, Stefan Sundstrom, and our designer, Alex Hunting, who's also based in London, Stefan's in Copenhagen, which is where Kinfolk is. I think what they wanted was to essentially make something that felt more sort of pick up and put downable. So, you know, this is the sort of thing that you could easily sort of slip into a bag. It doesn't feel, you know, you often see kinfolk put in these quite sort of precious situations. Maybe you see it like in a beautiful sort of like flat lay on a coffee table next to like a, you know, nicely poured latte. And I think the idea with this is that it's sort of far more like a movable feast, And it's aimed at people who perhaps don't have sort of an hour to sit down and read. It's like, yeah, you will sort of pick it up, put it down, do something else.
9: I like some of the fun elements of it. I mean, the, the stickers, actually. I, I love it. I'm sure I'm going to use them you know, somewhere in my house or something. The illustrations by Aspen Freeberg as well. Again, you're having fun while you're making a magazine. I think that's what sh- this shows to me.
6: Yeah, I think we had about as much fun as you can have when you're sort of, none of you are in the same place making yes. a magazine, which was quite <laughs> limiting. But it was really fun. And So the stickers are sort of, some of them are characters that appear in the magazine, like um, Claude R cover star the cloud person all the illustrations are done through espen throughout the magazine which sort of gives it i guess what we wanted to do and it's i'm glad because it sounds from what you're saying like it's at least semi-worked is make something that felt really fun and playful but had enough sort of visual continuity and i guess like style for want of a better word that it would also feel at home as part of like an adult setup as well as like a child's bedroom
0: The idea
9: for the magazine, I wonder how this came about. Did you guys realise, for example, that the King Folk readership, perhaps a lot of them were kind of parents themselves? And perhaps you saw, oh, there's a nice gap in the market. Perhaps we should explore that.
6: Yeah, I'd say it's definitely a case that, you know, and I'm not going off, perhaps won't surprise you to know that we don't sort of do rigorous audience analysis. (laughs) um, (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I I think, you know, probably a lot of our readers uh, were in their 20s when Kinfect started and now probably they're more in their 30s and, you know, families a bigger part of their life in whatever form that takes. But the other thing I should say is that in a way we didn't come up with the idea for this magazine. So Kindling actually circulated in 2013 for a couple of years under the title Kindling Quarterly. And then it was a really nice indie magazine based in the US and it had a focus specifically on fatherhood Um, and sort of I think the founders felt at the time like stories of sort of modern fatherhood weren't really getting told in um, either the indie media or the mainstream media. So they created that magazine which sort of circulated for I think six issues and then it sort of wound down. So we actually, you know, sort of acquired the rights to use that title just because it was a really nice magazine the name obviously kindling like just feels like a really nice fit for kinfolk Um, and we like the sort of legacy that it had but yeah it's sort of um in terms of what it is i wouldn't exactly call it a relaunch because this is such a different magazine but there is a sort of like lineage with something that came before and lots of the ideas were sort of sparked by that as well
9: and you know Kindling, it's amazing as well. But I also, you gave me the latest issue of King Folk. There's been a little kind of redesign. So it's quite an exciting period for you guys. A new title, a redesign of the main King Folk here as well.
6: Well, yeah, I guess the thing it's all tied to is the fact that this summer, so around when this episode comes out, will be the 10-year anniversary of King Folk Publishing. So, you know, we thought as part of that, maybe it's nice if we have our own baby. Um, sorry, that's really Talking cheesy, about babies, no, but it's... <laughs> that, that, that baby is kindling. And then the other thing that we've done, yeah, with Alex Hunting in London is to redesign Kinfolk a bit. And obviously, in terms of editorial content, the content has been evolving, you know, pretty much in every issue. Like, this is a very different magazine to what you'd have picked up, um, you know, 10 or even five years ago. But the last time we had a redesign was, I think, five years ago. So we thought there were sort of some things that could do with updating. And the main thing you sort of notice from a sort of striking visual perspective is that we've sort of got rid of the white bars on the cover. It's I, I think it looks very cover. beautiful
9: as well, the cover, I have to say.
6: Oh, thank you. Well, I think um, John, our editor-in-chief, maybe felt like the sort of white bars had become so ubiquitous. I think he was once asked for comment about um, a Bible that had essentially been designed with those white bars to look very, very similar to um, how kinfolk used to look. And I think maybe at that point we thought, OK, maybe it's time that we do something slightly different if this has become like quite ubiquitous in the um, magazine publishing world.
0: Kindling's editor-in-chief Harriet Fitch Little in conversation with Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco for last week's edition of The Stack. Our next highlight comes from the latest episode of Monocle on Design, where this week we met the artist and designer Yinka Ilori, whose colourful works can be found across London's boroughs. From a basketball court in Canary Wharf to enormous murals along Tottenham Court Road, Yinka's work is uplifting and often closely linked to the communities he's working in. Unveiled earlier this year, the installation As You Pass Me By, know that it is nothing but love from me. Is the first public artwork in a series that Yinka will roll out for the neighbourhood of Tottenham Hale. Monaco's Nick Moniz visited the piece and met Yinka to discuss the desired impact of the piece on the local community.
10: This project you know, is called As You Pass Me By, I Know that is Nothing But Love From Me. And I think this project was birthed out of lockdown. We spent the year kind of being at home and you know, not seeing family or seeing friends. And I think it was just acts of kindness that we all sort of shared in our communities. You know, my neighbours who I didn't speak to for so long would knock on my door and ask me if I'm okay. Or just people you didn't know in the street would just you know, would smile or say hello. I think because we sort of shared a sort of common pain and it was a collective, you know, um, experience... So I wanted to try to sort of, you know, retell that narrative, allow us to remember what that was like, you know, that year of not being able to go out to the pubs sort or of travel or see family and friends and just remind ourselves that, you know, we can still continue to love each other even when you walk past someone. Yeah, and I, th- I think that sort of, became quite important obviously in this last year those people immediately around you sort of became your your lifeline in many ways can you tell us how you sort of embody that in this artwork maybe describe the artwork for our listeners so it's a nightmare hoarding that consists of a sort of clandoscopic sort of color palette and as you have orange yellow I mean yeah it's pretty much a really sort of colorful vibrant hoarding that changes as you move along but above your head is where the text sits. As long as you've passed me by, now there's nothing but love from me. So I'm trying to take the audience and the, you know, the, sort of, the passer-by, through a journey. So as they're going past this holding, they're going to read this message and hopefully make them smile or hope make, them, make them offer a smile to so the next person that passes by them. Yeah, that's the installation. But I think also during this whole year, I've been obsessed with pink. And there's something quite joyful about the colour pink and positive and youthful. And I want to bring that out. What I wanted to try and do is create a, sort of, you know, an experience of kind of, you know, maybe it's a two or three-minute experience um, that you might get from the and hopefully that will carry you through the whole day. And you know, you might come back to it because you want to get that sort of fat juice and that kind of you know, that energy that you might probably, that you may not get anywhere else, but in Tottenham. And I think I think it's worth pointing out you are wearing a pink hat right now, so that that's yeah. right there. I mean, my colour palette that I'm wearing today is I'm wearing a sort of pink camo hat and a sort of lilac jacket, which is the palette that you see on the installation today. I mean you talk as well about people maybe coming back or being drawn back to it and being uplifted by it you've got a residency here for two sure. years what do you hope to sort of start to bring out of that local community over that two years what do you hope you can offer them I mean this initial step is clearly about uplifting but what else I guess are you hoping to do with your design for the community here I think mean, for me you know Tottenham is a really special you know place strong family links in Tottenham you know what it's happening here, I think, is really special. I think not only for the community, but also for the younger community who are going to be the future and face of Tottenham. I think for me, having my work on gangster hoarding um, hopefully inspired the next generation of artists, architects, designers, because you know, what's been built is designed by the architects, designers. They have the creative vision. But also, I just want to inspire you know, young kids who want to be you know, future architects or designers and let them know you know it's possible you know, to be there. But also, it's about trying to give you know, people that live in Tottenham Sense of pride and ownership of their community because I think every kind of you know borough will have something that maybe may not be seen as positive. I think if you give them something that they're proud of, people are going to want to come down and be like, "Okay, have you seen that piece in Tottenham?" So people have this sense of pride that you know I've got this installation here and it's mine. And I think what I like to try and do is when I create work, is the work doesn't belong to me anymore; it belongs to the community. So over time, it matures. You know, the people become the fabric of the artwork. But then also, I think for me, it's really important to try and make art, you know, inclusive in public spaces, because I think sometimes art can sometimes feel not inclusive, um, whether it's in a gallery or a museum, because people might feel they don't belong or they can't access these spaces. Bringing art to your front doorstep and to people in their cars who stop in traffic looking at it, they're already in a gallery. That's the power of public art. How do you, I mean, other than putting it in their community, giving it a physical presence, are you working with members of the community on upcoming pieces? How are you also engaging them, perhaps, in, in the making process as well? Yeah, I think this particular project, we worked with Vicky. He was also one of the consultants on the project and Argent. And as you know, there's different phases, you know, in this project. So I think the next phase, which would be, you know, during my residency, there will be a kind of community engagement process in this project, which we're still developing. But I think mean, for me, you know, having the community involved in my process, I think is so key because, you know, you see a lot of kind of public sculptures and artworks in public spaces that have no link to the community. They're just kind of plonked there, so there's no connection. They can't relate to what they're seeing. There's no, they can't create new memories or you know relive old memories. So I think for me, it's quite key to kind of you know, always try and involve the, art, you know, the community, whether it's young or old, or you know, people that sort of feel disconnected to their community. With, and we all the kind of huge developments happening around. Bring them on that journey because they will celebrate it. This is great what's happening in Tottenham, but in 20, 30 years' time. It's people behind me are going to carry that flag of Tottenham. So we need to bring them on that journey with us. You're out in, in the mm-hmm. communities working with people. You know. And I, I, know you, I know you make things in the studio as well, but what do you get personally yeah. from being out in the community? Oh, it's incredible because, you know, you become a little bit vulnerable because you, you work in your studio every day of the year. You go into a public space and you get to talk to young kids, adults, the elderly. They tell you their stories. Those stories is what fills me with inspiration to create new works of art. There's a Nigerian musician called King Sunny Ade, and he says the people are the fabric that I wear, and which means in your Lashio, we'll me Timor Finbora, that's in Yoruba, and I think that is what my work's about. It's about the people. I get energy from the people and their stories and experiences, and just their aura, and that just fills me with joy. And you know, you can't. During lockdown, I missed being around people, being around my community. So yeah, it's a very different experience from being in your office and around your team, but being in a community that has so much energy, inspiration, ideas, love. One of the biggest things you get in the community is love, and that's why
0: the love sign is on that installation, because there is a lot of love in Tottenham, you know? The artist and designer Yinka Lor is speaking to Monocle's Nick Manis for this week's edition of Monocle on Design. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle24, and I am Marcos Hippi. Up next, we turn to the latest installment of Food Neighbourhoods. This week, we hear from the man behind Brooklyn's Popina restaurant, Chris McDade. Here is Chris with one of his favourite recipes.
8: Hi, guys, I'm Chris McDade, chef-owner of a small Italian restaurant called Popina in Brooklyn, New York. You know, I grew up in the South, learned to love the grill and Italian food. And that's what kind of brings me to this uh, recipe out of the book, The Magic of Tin Fish, which is cast iron ribeye steak with anchovy butter. One of the reasons I love this is because most people love steak and finishing it with the anchovy butter adds like a level of umami that you might not get from a normal steak. It's kind of like, if you think of Worcestershire sauce, a lot of old school Worcestershire sauces or your favorite steak sauce may have anchovy hidden in. It. So uh, for this, we'll start with the butter. It's just a couple of sticks of unsalted butter at room temperature, a good handful of anchovy filets, garlic, that's all been minced together, a little bit of grated lemon zest, squeeze of fresh juice. And just to add a little bit of an herbal element, you're gonna toast up some fennel seed, grind those up. And we basically just mix all that together in a bowl so that you have almost like a compound butter, like a seasoned butter. After that, we just take a room temperature steak, season it with salt, throw it in a cast iron pan. You know, you want it pretty high heat. You're gonna give it a good sear each side, maybe four to five minutes to get it medium rare, depending on the thickness of your steak. When it comes off, I like to just put the butter on, right on top of the steak, let it rest a little while, maybe five, six minutes. And then what we'll do is we'll slice that steak out. Whatever juices do run into that butter, we'll kind of mix all that together put your sliced steak on a plate and then pour that butter that's been infused now with the beef juices and kind of just pour it right back over the top of your steak.
0: Chris McDade of Brooklyn Spapina for the latest edition of Food Neighbours. Finally on today's show we head down to New Zealand to meet the commercial helicopter pilot who created the True Honey Co. The high-end Manuka brand was founded in 2013 by Jim McMillan who used his relationships with landowners to produce honey in some of the most remote parts of the country. For this week's episode of The Entrepreneurs, Jim spoke to the show's host, Daniel Bage.
2: Not that long ago Manuka Honey was actually considered almost like a weed. Certainly in my career as a helicopter pilot, I spent quite a large amount of time actually cutting, spraying. It was considered a weed, I guess, and it was cleared accordingly. As the Manuka honey industry has evolved over time, it's viewed quite differently because it's generating those landowners an income stream and now a viable part of their farming operation. There's been certainly significant growth in the industry from a production standpoint, and that has certainly tied up a lot of resource. But right from the very beginning of True Honey, I guess really booked the business on the production of some of the purest Manuka honey in the world from some of the most remote locations. So that's an area that we've focused very hard and haven't really deviated from that. So because of my background in aviation experience with helicopters, it's positioned us very well to just really capitalise on that sector and working very hard to continue to create our premium slash luxury brand. And we wanted to be able to provide honey lovers around the world with the opportunity if they're buying a very premium luxury end product to have the confidence that it's come from some of the cleanest, greenest locations around New Zealand and they're certainly free from any Potential pesticide or other residues
1: Jim obviously this has been quite the growth for you in the past number of years as explained from you know first flying over these different properties and and discovering the potential for this market just talk to me about how interesting that has been for you and how exciting you are to continue to grow this company, which is quite the mark of quality for New Zealand. Uh, it's a time when a lot of people are thinking about top-level quality products like this. They're thinking about sustainability. Talk to me about what you've got going on, how you plan to grow,
2: and, and how exciting
6: it's been for you.
2: It really started off as a production business, so specializing in the production of you know, very pure or high-grade banuka from remote locations and even that in its own self I guess felt very privileged to be able to produce a gift from nature from some of the most beautiful parts around our country I guess was a real privilege and some of the you know the the true partnerships and relationships or win-win relationships were sort of created as part of that that's been very rewarding also so a lot of remote stands of Manuka once considered a wasteland now generating Income and revenue stream. It's having a positive impact on some of the surrounding remote communities as well. As the business is growing, entering into the export market, certainly been a a big eye opener, I guess, to understand and conceive just the extent of the size of the globe and the opportunity. For example, our first biggest markets and probably selling into and significant volumes of honey. Saudi Arabia, which was a country I'd never even considered exporting our honey to it to sort of come about by chance, really. Where we're heading to moving forward, we've got a very, very dedicated, passionate team. We're all pretty motivated about what the future might hold. We're very focused on carving out a bit of a new segment for Manuka honey, like right in that very luxury in space have the opportunity to take a gift from nature or a primary product from New Zealand and to look after it with such care all along the journey and produce the highest quality product possible for that luxury end market, I guess in itself. I feel very privileged to be able to do that. It's been a very exciting journey, but I'm sure we've still got you know, a long way to go yet, but we're very committed to continuing to innovate to ensure we can keep pushing the boundaries of what can be achieved
0: into the future. Jim McMillan, founder of The True Honey Co., speaking to Monaco's Danielle Bage. You can hear the full interview on this week's episode of The Entrepreneurs. Just head to monocle.com forward slash radio. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impian, presented by me, Marcus Hippie. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monocle 24. Thanks for listening.